Kia ora, I'm Andrew from Ira Video in Wellington, New Zealand, and welcome to episode 16 of Back to the Disc Player, the Ira Video podcast. It's inspired by our Adopt-A-Movie scheme, which enables film lovers to purchase an exclusive lifelong affiliation with a title in our library or an acquisition that we may not have. It's where I get the privilege to talk to our customers about their personal connection to the film or films they've chosen to adopt and for us to find out a bit about them as well. Episode 16 is with Ross Harris, a music academic and teacher, musician and preeminent New Zealand composer who lives here in the Aro Valley. He's written more than 200 compositions, including opera, symphonic music, chamber music, electronic music, and more recently something called klezmer, and was awarded and acknowledged as an arts laureate in 2014. Apart from that, he's a very humble and affable bloke, and to be sure does not blow his own trumpet, for that is not his instrument of choice. While I've known Ross as a customer for many years, and known mostly through the grapevine of his exploits and successes in the field of classical music, I did not know his work firsthand, which may be patently obvious to some of you who do, so please forgive my trespasses. In researching Ross's career, I barely scratched the surface in terms of the works themselves, but I did learn a lot from him in conversation in terms of his outlook as an artist, and uh, so I hope you get as much out of it as I did in the good company of composer Ross Harris. Also, please excuse the rumble of the heater in the background in the first half of this interview. Well, hello, Ross. Welcome to Upstairs at Aro Video. It's so lovely to have you here. It's, in fact, an honour, oh, you know, Andrew, truly. Too kind. <laughs> you, you're welcome. I mean, um, I, um, I also, you know, had, had thought you might come on a bit earlier in the year, but uh, you've, you've been ailed with a bit of health issues, and I just wanted to know how you are now. I mean, clearly better. Yeah, oh, yes. I, I wouldn't have thought I could be this good, actually. But what had been happening before I had angina, I didn't actually know that. Right. Um, so I was grinding to a halt over the last couple of years. Yeah. And then um, I had a sort of a, a test on a trampoline with an ECG. And after about two minutes, the, the cardiologist said, stop. Okay. <laughs> We're going to have to do something. And I tried to do um, uh, a stent, yeah. first of all, and they couldn't do that. So then they decided they'd have to carve me up. Right, and, and um, give you a full bypass. Full bypass, right, and it was sure. a big blockage, so I could have had a heart attack at any right. time. okay. So when did you, you know, so the last couple of years you've been feeling weaker, but mm. the actual discovery of angina was this year, was it? Yes, it was. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I didn't really know. I'd sort of stopped doing anything very physically interesting, active, like tennis. I'd given that away, and I'd be very keen to get back to that. Yeah. It's one of my favourite things. Yeah. So um, this has been kind of miraculous, really. Yeah. So far. Oh, well, welcome back. Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> glad to be back, to be honest. <laughs> no, I'm, uh, no, it's, it's, it's awesome news. Mm. So, um, now, I, uh, you're, you're a local, and uh, one thing I, I thought of when having you on the podcast, the idea of it, I, I thought, oh, I remember 
Ross uh, once saying to me that he'd he'd moved into the valley to be closer to Aro Video. Do you remember saying that to me? Oh, oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and uh, and I thought that that's yeah, something that did stick with me, and, mm. and something I have told quite a few people over the years, just as one of those little anecdotes. Was yeah. the odd bread shop and and stuff as well, of course. Sure, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and um, but uh, those. Um, it's it's uh, almost slightly quaint in retrospect, you know, in this mm. day and age that mm. one would, uh, you know, uh, move for, for such reasons. Yeah, um, but but it's so ter- incredibly good. So well, yeah, we've seen we've seen a lot of you over the years. So mm. thank you so much for, Pleasure, for your Ryan, support yes. and um, trotting in and out. Yes, it's always been uh, been nice to talk and and and. Uh, look after you and Barbara. Mm, thank you. Now, I must admit, I'm a little daunted by this conversation. <laughs> uh, I have um, full disclosure, very limited knowledge about the world of classical and, and even experimental music, and mm. uh, don't test me on anything about Russian history. Um, <laughs> so I had a bit of a crash course, um, and uh, you know, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, we only have an hour, maybe a bit more. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's a delightful little segue from our last podcast episode about mm. uh, with Simon and his uh, pinball mm, yes. um, uh, obsession and um, we've installed the pinball machine here at RO Video and uh, lo and behold you uh, <laughs> tell us what you did. Well I heard the podcast and I had already collected a whole lot of very strange um, machine sounds and stayed on a farm in Ashburton and um, this guy had a little bit of a museum of old um, butter churns and, and, and things like that. And I just went in with my recorder and turned the wheels and scraped and screeched. And they were quite unusual. And, and I, so I was thinking of this piece um, for the launch of the a Free Radicals album, which is coming up in a month or so, mm. uh, where we have to perform. I thought, I can perhaps make a piece out of that. And then I heard the pinball on the podcast and I thought, well, there you go. That's the next step for right. this piece. So it's, it's some kind of machine noise yeah. uh, kind of piece, which is cliched yeah. in a way, but I think yeah. I'm doing it in some other strange mm-hmm. way. And I'm also doing it um, exclusively on a machine called Deluge, Deluge, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which has been built by um, Rowan Hill in Wellington right. and is built and sold here and sent all around awesome. the world. And right. It's a f- funny little retro-looking box. Hmm. But it does lots of very interesting things. And I thought it was a good way back into the free radical world, which had been mm-hmm. kind of, a, well, now looking back, very clunky kind of technology. This mm. is not clunky, but it gives the appearance of being a mm-hmm. little bit old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. So so that's my challenge at the moment. I'm not writing any other pieces until this launch. I'm working on um, mm-hmm. uh, pinball and squeaky machines right right <laughs> sure so um you you got me to play a game while you mm, recorded yes, it that would have been difficult for me so to... i'd like a credit please on any, <laughs> any kind of compositional uh, you know i'll um, mention it yeah. absolutely uh, no i'm joking <laughs> um but it, it was interesting playing a game of pinball just for the auditory mm. uh, effect yeah, and sure. uh, and the and the uh, asymmetrical rhythms that it produced it was it was it was quite awesome uh, yes and when i got my mic Microphones in close at the top end of the machine. The stereo movement yes. is is fantastic. It's yeah. just flying everywhere, and mm. there are many many different sounds all shooting off at once. So yeah. it's a terrific sound source. Yeah, oh, mm-hmm. excellent. Um, well, I'm glad yeah, that that there's that there's uh, inspiration you can find everywhere. Is there, uh, you know, as a composer, and and you've been doing it for quite a few decades, mm-hmm. is being cognizant of of, of the rhythms of 
everyday life, the, the kind of, you know, you just made a comment about the sound of pouring a beer. Um, is that something that is part of how you process the world or, or not? Oh, definitely. Yes, yes. Once, um, not thinking deliberately about it, but if something strange or interesting happens, then it catches your ear. And I haven't worked in this kind of quasi-electronic medium till, you know, for quite a long time. So during that inter- intervening period, I didn't think so much about it. But once I got back into thinking about how to structure sound rather than notes that played by instruments, then everything that happens in the house or, or anywhere is like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So it, it, yeah, it enlivens one's brain. brain. Yeah, sure. So it's kind of about being in the zone uh, for a particular, whatever project you're on. Yeah, a little and then, bit. And, yeah. yeah, I think that's probably fair enough. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I am... Um, I'm a pop culture boy, mm-hmm. classical music ignoramus, which I think I alluded to before. <laughs> but um, but I am a songwriter myself, or at least a, a budding songwriter. So I right. do have. I'm very interested in the subject of composing. Right. Um, but I was thinking about my connection to classical music, and I, I I barely, you know, earned the mantle of dilettante with you know Nigel Kennedy's Four Seasons, <laughs> Albanoni's Adagio, oh, beautiful piece, and, and a couple of uh, movie related things. Good right. old Armadeus. Right. And I own the Diva soundtrack on vinyl. Mm, and, of course I do. <laughs> and don't remember the tune in Burnt by the Sun. Well, it's the most gorgeous melody. Oh, it is? Yeah. Is, is there a particular yeah, composer? Well, or? A, uh, actually, that's interesting. I thought you might ask about that, but I can't figure out who wrote it. It says who p- performs it in the, on the okay. info. Right. But it, and it may be a traditional tune from somewhere in that area. Okay. But, but um, you don't have it at the ready? For this interview, it. <laughs> you can sing it. I, I was. You want to have a. <laughs> I get a good idea. It's very I mean, evocative. I missed the first three notes. No, but I, it's, it's, I can hear it. <laughs> yeah, you get the yeah, feel. Yeah, and for it's, sure. it seems. Yeah, actually, yeah. it's very, we, very important part of that movie for my ears. So there you go. Now, I was going to ask you to <laughs> maybe bring along your accordion you know, in a fleeting ah. thought, but mm. your, your vo- vocals, and, and you've just demonstrated some singing there, but that's Ish. pretty much absent from your entire oeuvre. Is that no, correct? No, that, that's not true. No? No, I've, I've okay. written many songs. Now, these are songs in the classical sense, which like piano yeah. and voice, sure. or orchestra and, and, and voice. No, I, yeah. I love setting words. Yeah. I don't write them, and you as a songwriter presumably do, yeah. I am completely incapable of that. Right. So I've worked largely with Vincent O'Sullivan over the last sure. 15 years, and we've done a lot of projects together, yeah. including songs. Yeah. Okay, so so um, you've set Vincent's poems to... to no, to he's written. He's actually written the, mu- the right. words specifically. Indeed. So he is your see. go-to librettist, is that what Absolutely, you call Absolutely, yeah, yeah, definitely. And he, um, he writes differently when it's going to be... For music, and he's—I think he's been intrigued to find that about his work, hmm. that um, there's a different thing happening if you write a poem, and if you, then if you write something that will be sung. It, hmm. And I wouldn't like to specify what that might be, but I think it's something to do with slightly less complex hmm. thought, um, because the music's going to add its own emotional and melodic sure. kind of context to the poetry. So, you know, if you were trying to set um, T.S. Eliot or something, it, it's a bit of a nightmare because okay. the whole thing is so complete and coherent in itself mm. in its own terms yeah. and, and Vincent's poetry is like that as well sure. so it's an interesting world to do yeah. 
move around. Have you found working with uh, going back to the, the same collaborator, is that something where you kind of develop a, a working language that makes it easier than working with someone that you haven't uh, yeah. worked with before? Is that Yeah, no, I think that's a big part of how we've got on. We're, we're also very good friends. We talk about things like rugby and yep. stuff as well. And yep. um, I think initially he, he would write um, the words and I, would, I wouldn't be able to say, you know, this is what it's going to sound like because that's not actually going to happen until it's performed mm. unless I do something like a computer mock-up. And right. that often I would sing along with the computer sort of trying to indicate exactly, yeah. no, very approximately what it's going to be like. Sure. But once that's performed, he kind of knows how that's going to happen. So the next time he writes some words, that's in his memory a, a bit more. And as the pieces accumulate, he more and more knows what will work with my music or what I will be happy to work with. Yeah. Occasionally he'll throw in a, a kind of difficult word that won't be easy to see it just to see how I get mm-hmm. get on with it mm-hmm. so that's a little challenge between us I like mm-hmm. a to and fro yeah, yeah. Are, th- are these uh, they're, they're always in English uh, you know because there has been operatic uh, you know o- operas that have um, that you've done and they're always in English or, or not Vincent's works are always in English yeah. yes yeah 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 so you're you're dealing with the the meaning as well as the the, the kind of um Absolutely. It's a uh, phonetic quality. Mm, yeah, and I just love setting the English language. It's, mm. um, it's something you think about a lot you mm. know, as a composer, how, mm. how things will come across. And I do find it a lot in uh, popular music, the accents are really kind of weird. Mm. Um, but I don't think it matters because it's, you know, it's a different genre, but I like to make it mm. actually quite close to conversational inflections. Mm-hmm. In is there a, you know, there seems to be a, the reason I asked that about the English language is because we normally, um, you know, most of the popular operas are not in English mm. and that uh, hearing opera in English can sometimes be very distracting for people that are not used to it. Is, is that, uh, is, is it a problem for, for audiences to to be too focused on the, the meaning. literal meaning and, wow. and, and be distracted from the musicality or the poetry. That's an interesting point. But I will say that <clears throat> most of the famous operas, of course, aren't in English, and there are many terrific operas that are. And um, the reason that people um, aren't so familiar with them is that they're just simply not of the class of a Puccini, I suppose, or mm. a Strauss or a Wagner. Sure. Um, I mean, Benjamin Britten, it's, it's terrific music, but it's, um, it's on a different, different kind of levels. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think the English lang- language is really a, a problem for a listener. I, I can understand what you mean about hearing too much kind of information on the narration, mm. but mm. I, I'm, I'm hoping that wouldn't be a problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In yeah. fact, with the um, opera that Vincent and I did in the last couple of years, um, we actually had subtitles, surtitles as well. So, right. so even though the words, uh, it's always hard for especially sopranos to sing up high, and he, you can hear the words because they get above them all the vowels. Oh, sure. Um, and then, so we, so definitely, the information about what was going on in the story was crucial yep. for us. I think I've seen some some amateur productions in in the past where they've translated perhaps an Italian opera into English, yeah. And then you and then it sounds very you know over literal and and, mm. and, and sort and of jarring. Probably, of yeah. course, it's probably not going to be very good poetry. It's very hard to get no. you know the melody from a Russian you know uh, opera into English words. Yeah, you've got to be mm. a very clever 
mm. uh, translator of that information. Mm. But a lot of your composing is is not uh, with with vocal though. It's in, it's it's instrumental. It's symphonies. You've done mm. um, concertos yep. uh, and uh, sonatas, violin sonatas. No. No, no sonatas. No, no, no. sonatas. No, oh, concertos. Concertos. Violin concerto, cello concerto, tuba okay. concerto. Right. Okay. I don't remember any sonatas. Okay. No. <laughs> all right. Getting ahead of myself. That's right. Um, I'm just probably, showing off my my knowledge of, of the glossary. You might you be know. anticipating yeah. my next work. Could you, you, you can have that one? You know, <laughs> pinball sonatas. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, the majority of your work is instrumental. That be right. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. So we're talking about the, the libretto and the, and and the themes and how that suggests what the way that the music might go. So is theme incredibly important to you when you're just composing music without yeah. any words? You don't mean musical theme. You mean a sort of topic, kind of thing. Yeah. So that's right. To- yeah, topic and, topic, and yeah. uh, 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 something that will inspire the music that tells the story. Uh, it has a story, and you're mm-hmm. going to tell it musically. Or is that it does uh, not I've, have to be that way? It doesn't have to be that way. But I do tend to 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 be a little bit that way. Often not telling an audience, um, you know, what actually what was my inspiration. Sure. Just let the people interpret it any way they like. Um, I did a piece called To a Child, which I wrote in 1973 when one of my children died very young. And uh, somebody listened to it and he said, ah, oh, that's the most wonderful Christmas music. Mm. And I realised there and then that that's what the listener heard and that's absolutely fine. It's yeah. always going to be like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Jolly, that's the good thing about music. Mm-hmm. It's ambiguity. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it is not clear what it's actually saying. And so it can also get into you, get into you much more sure. as well. Sure. So that you don't think that there's a, um, I guess, when you're working with a librettist and you have a, uh, you know, there is a, a narrative, if you like, and mm. you are supporting that narrative or trying to interpret it in a musical way, that doesn't kind of bleed over into your instrumental works and in, in as a methodology, as a kind of like, oh, I, I'm, I'm I, or I have a, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, um, uh, you know, there are different movements in a symphony and what leads you from one thing to another in terms of your your, your ideas is, is is there is it give it an example of how you would right well i mean with the composing with, process yes with something like a symphony that has words and i do do that and that's something that Mahler used as a sort of precedent um so that's almost operatic but if it's just an instrumental piece then it comes from the i well there's a number of things um if i know what the instruments are going to be and if I know what the players, who the players are going to be, they are both very inspiring things because you get a visual, physic, a visual image of what they're going to be doing when they make, when you write something, you think, what will that look like? What will that feel like when they play it? That's inspiring. Um, commission, it's not such a bad thing either, but as the actual pieces unfold, it's usually um, an idea at the beginning. Mm-hmm. which could come to me in any kind of weird time like I could be wandering around the streets sometimes I whistle things into my phone so mm. I kind of captured them mm. um, and then one thing leads to another mm. essentially mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and the, the, I don't use sort of sonata forms or classical forms much there's much more a kind of perhaps stream of consciousness mm-hmm. uh, idea with the piece I'm very interested in transformation so an idea might appear to be one thing and then a few seconds later, it gradually turns into something mm. darker or you know brighter. Sure. Or, you know, so yeah, the listeners kind of 
what's going on here. I would like mm-hmm. people to think, if they're following it, and I hope they will be, I mean, a good listener mm-hmm. would, um, they'd be, like, confused about this and it could create feelings and so forth. I mean, it's that whole kind of emotional thing which is important to me. Is, is there an element of surprise, uh, surprising yourself when you're composing, that, 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 as you say, one thing kind of evolves into another and it can be, you know, quite, quite a contrast? Is there, do, do you like surprising yourself of where a piece goes? Is, is that part of it or not? Yeah, it can be. Um, uh, it's not always clear at the beginning of a piece where it's going to head up. So to, to that extent, it's a surprise. But as it moves along, it's probably not that much of a surprise that the next mm. thing is going to happen. Mm. Although I'm quite interested in uh, techniques which might generate material that I don't have complete ownership of and then I have to adapt to the circumstances. But that's a very technical kind of, kind of thing. Mm. <clears throat> An intellectual game in a way, some people mm. would think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've been composing for, for, for many years. I don't know how many. Do you know how many? No. <laughs> <laughs> is there, a, when you have composed so many pieces across a, a lot of genres, you're, is there, a, um, now that you are in your mature years and, and you, you, know, you, are, um, uh, you know, have quite a body of work behind you, is there a, um, a, a part of it that in, uh, where you are wanting to do something different that you've done before? Is that... Are you challenging yourself? Is that part of the process as well? Um, it's hard yeah. to it's hard to imagine what that might be. I've done such a variety of things mm. over mm. the years, um, and probably one gets on and settles mm. into comfort, comfortable things or things that you get a deeper and deeper understanding about how things might work in the musical language that you're thinking about. So yeah. I, I don't know that I'd absolutely burst into a whole new area. I don't mean, actually, I don't really mean now. I mean, oh. you, you know, perhaps... Oh, at uh, different times. You know, at different times where, where, where um, you know, for example, you... Uh, you uh, retired, I think, in 2004 from lecturing at, mm-hmm, uh, at mm-hmm. Victoria University. Yep, um, after 33 years. 33 years. So what was your position there, Ross? Uh, I ended up being an associate professor. Yep, sure. Yep. Yep, yep. So I noticed that uh, you, um, you left before retirement age mm-hmm. so, and went freelancing as a composer. Is yes, that I did. what happened? Yep. Yeah. So I would, uh, and I, I know that you were quite prolific in that period, um, um, immediately following that's um, true. your retirement, that's which is uh, goes stands to reason, mm. given that you've got more time on your hands. It wasn't absolutely certain that it would happen. Right, I was lucky that I was able to find sure. things to focus on in residencies like the Auckland Philharmonia and the Victoria right. University ones. They, they were, those were paying me a kind of salary to work. Yep. And all yep. I had to do was write music. So pretty sure, good. sure, sure. So I guess I mean in that very fertile period. Mm. Um, was there a? Did you feel like you are, you know, you want to you keep keep pushing the limits? Because I know you are, um, you're an avid experimenter, and you're want, you're wanting to do different things. Um, there's just one thing that um, that was that uh, was in a piece that I read on your website, written by Chris Watson, which was a lovely piece um, that he wrote when you turned sixty. And uh, one thing that. Uh, stuck out to me, which I wasn't overly familiar with, was quarter tonality. All right. And um, uh, and I thought, well, you're venturing into quarter tonality. Uh, can you first explain what that is, and then why you would go into such a, um, a mode? Right. Well, I mean, there are twelve notes on the normal scale, which you'd find on the piano, and they're equal temperament. Um, basically, what you do with a quarter tone is put another note between each one of those, so you get twenty-four notes to the octave. Mm. Uh, this produces um, the possibility of a musical language and gesture which is not similar to Mozart. Mm. It's got to be rethought in 
<clears throat> working with these different kinds of intervals. So that's incredibly exciting and, and inspiring. And when I do work on a piece like that, and I've done a couple of string quartets that have that sort of thing, um, and afterwards I go back to writing for ordinary notes on the ordinary scale, I feel incredible loss. Right. Because when you do a piece of music, or well, at least I do, I'm, I'm completely absorbed in it <clears throat> for the period of, of its um, creation. And then that's it. Um, forget about it. And uh, But I've certainly, certainly on occasion missed... Missed that, but now that I haven't written with quarter tones much for a while, I don't right. think much about them. Sure. So tell me how how um, <coughs> how do you uh, immediately uh, electronic instruments seem capable of playing quarter tones? So how would mm. you get a violin to play a quarter tone? Well, just yeah. move the finger a little bit. Move the finger a little <laughs> yeah. bit. Okay. Yeah. It's an interesting thing about the electronic instruments because one of the horrors of the whole history of electronic music is that they, with the Moog synthesizer, it, 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 it turned into a keyboard. With a with an ordinary old twelve note scale, right. In fact, there are many many synthesizers where you might have an interesting sample or something something really weird, and you play it on one note, and then you play it on another note. Yeah. And what you hear is the interval of the note, mm. which is actually goes right back to blowing Beethoven. Right. And I I just can't work with that. And right. that's some, one of the things I've been able to do with the deluge is just find mm. something that doesn't belong to any of those scales. So you're not referring mm. back all the mm. time. But mm. the quarter tone thing is. Mm. Partly a kind of escape. Yeah, okay. I was just curious about <laughs> sure thing. Um, you, the, the deluge you mentioned before we started talking was. <coughs> no, the, yes. Uh, yes. Had, uh, you replaced the Sibelius uh, uh, compositional tool. Or, no, that's or another it? thing. That was Dorico, which is oh, music I notation software, which oh, I'm I sorry. moved on to. Oh, I see. The right. deluge is a little electronic. Right. Box, I'm think. sorry. Both D words. Yeah, yeah, quite. Yeah, I see. So, um, <coughs> so that. Uh, can you explain to listeners the, the Sibelius software and, 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 and Dorico how, uh, you know, can you, um, well, while we're on the subject, can we just talk about notation? Uh, is is, yeah. is uh, musical notation is notoriously uh, uh, difficult. It confounds most people when they learn music, uh, when they're young people. It's kind of like, oh, this is too hard. Mm. I, I, I can't do this. Um, 
let's go back to the beginning. You, you know, uh, it, what, where, where did it, um, the musical bug? Where did you you get it from, and what, and how was it? Uh, how did you lean towards the classical side of things? Well, um, there was no music in my family uh, to speak of, and um, when I went to high school, um, the guy next door said. Uh, if you don't want to carry a gun, because there was cadets back in those days at Christchurch Boys High, um, join the school band. Okay. So I went along to the music room and I walked in and I was big. Yeah. And they said, look, you can have this big instrument, which was a, a tuba or B-flat bass. It was a brass band instrument. Mm. And I picked it up and played it. And, it, and it, it just seemed as though my life was transformed. Sorry, how old were you, Ross, do you think? 13, I guess. 13. Yeah. So I was not, not a terribly early starter, I yeah. see. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, I've been a very boring, unfocused, rather useless person. I felt, and probably others felt, possibly my parents, I think my father would have liked me to play rugby and something, mm-hmm. you know, strong like that. But I was hopeless and didn't, didn't fit into the family in that respect at all. Mm-hmm. But the music thing that was like, wow, this is okay. something I can do. Sure. And so within a few weeks I was playing in you know, brass bands. and. Yep. I started in brass bands, of course, which has nothing much to do with classical music. Mm-hmm. But after a while, I started to find classical music more and more interesting. Not necessarily Beethoven and Mozart, but Stravinsky, for example, was a huge mm-hmm. passion of mine. I used to come home from school, put my ear up to the radiogram so that nobody else in the house could hear it, and just listen to the writer spring mm-hmm. over and over and over and over. And I had no idea what was going on, mm-hmm. but I was just completely mm-hmm. riveted by mm-hmm. it. Because it's very dramatic music it was like mm. nothing else and there was no TV at the um, time late 50s we're talking no we didn't have any anyway mm. right okay <laughs> uh, so right of spring on the radio and uh, no, on so, a record oh, oh, on a record LP. oh no, I see right yes, okay. I put, yeah, and yeah. I picked it up in a sale okay nobody wanted it it was very cheap yep. and I just wore it out virtually right right so was the there was a, there a connection with your brass instrument to Stravinsky's music? Was there a direct a direct oh, connection? Possibly he does yeah. use brass very well. Yeah, it's it's quite brassy. The right of spring, mm. if I yeah, it has a lot know. of um, it's got eight was it eight horns and two mm. tubers plus all the you know mm. trumpets and trombones and mm. ordinary tubers, all sorts. Mm. Um, possibly yeah, I don't know. I certainly so, I know now uh, that my. Symphony. The brass writing in my symphonies is fairly unlike mm. anybody else's because I know what the hell you can do mm-hmm. down to the yeah. most unusual things. So jumping ahead to the compositional inspiration and... Uh, and oh, I wanted also... to compose straight away. Oh, right, okay. And that was weird because yep. I had no idea what it meant. Right. Um, I remember <laughs> I would write up a piece of, set up a piece of manuscript paper and I'd put Symphony for Brass Band and write some instruments you know, and I, I would never get beyond that point right. I had no idea yep. it was it's kind of weird actually and so um, eventually I wrote a few notes and I took it to the brass band teacher and he said you've got consecutive fifths and I, the, the fact that you could do something wrong mm. completely horrified me and I just got scared mm. terrified and was afraid to do any more for mm-hmm. possibly a year or so it, um, mm-hmm. I'm a bit of a slow starter in that respect so learning the uh, the brass instrument. Sorry, what was the tuba? The, the tuba. Yeah. Um, you already had to become familiar with notation in order to participate. In well, the, I learned that straight band. away. Right. I'm having the least trouble. I've never understood why people don't right. read, can't read music easily. Sure. Sure. I mean, I know very intelligent mm. people who have trouble with it, and it's, mm. it's a complete mm. puzzle to me. It's weird, <laughs> isn't it? 
Yeah, well, I, I get the I mean, principle of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, all musicians have absolutely no trouble <laughs> Just with lazy, it whatsoever. lazy laziness. Um, so the... <laughs> okay, so... In other words, there was a connection there with listening to Stravinsky and being inspired and having a pen and paper and knowing what to do with it in order to produce musical notes. Well, Simple as that. Not virtually. knowing what to do with it. Not knowing. But wanting yeah. desperately to do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So when was your breakthrough? Um, and well, I really didn't write anything until I got to, to university. And mm -hmm. um, in the honours year, I produced some pieces which have kind of like Arawata mm -hmm. Bill setting of some Dennis Glover. That's kind of still... Mm -hmm could be performed if anybody wanted it. Yeah, so uh, you went you went to university to study music. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, mm -hmm. I, well, I know I was going to be a school teacher. Mm. And um, I had a studentship, which was like paying your fees at that time. And then got to the end of that, and I thought, oh, I don't really want to be a school teacher. And I was, I was that, at that point, I'd changed to playing the French horn. Mm -hmm. And I was going to be a professional horn player. In fact, that's what happened. Uh, so I paid back my studentship. And then, of course, after a couple of years on the horn, went back to the university and a that would have paid off the studentship. That was teaching. So, mm. you know, it's, it's um, just one of those things. But teaching at a university is pretty different from school teaching. Mm. So mm -hmm. that was a good place to be, actually, for many years. Sure. So there's a, uh, a teaching thing, and you've also got the performing and the being a musician and also the, 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 the composer in you. Mm. Is there, a, uh, as a horn player, were there any obstructions to being a composer for other instruments? Or, or did you find that relatively easy? No, I, I had more trouble writing for the French horn right. because I wasn't a terribly good player myself and I right. figured that if I wrote something hard for the horn players in our local orchestra, they would come and say, you, you play that, come on, show, mm. show us how it goes. Mm. And so I was very cautious about that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I stopped playing it that I sort of let, let my creativity free. <laughs> okay, so how did that transition happen if you, you stopped playing and then you focus exclusively on composing? Is that what you mean? No, no, uh, I, I was composing all the way through uh, right. all the, those years of teaching and playing the horn on the side. The, right. as far as the, what do you it, mean by stop playing then? Well, I didn't stop until... Actually, that's a fair comment. I probably stopped seriously... I could have all the way through teaching in your music. What? Are you, are you a robot, Ross? Yes. Damn, I've been that's found so, out. Oh, my gosh. That's... that's <laughs> he's got a smartwatch, ladies and gentlemen, that just interrupted our uh, discourse. I think um, yeah. Siri tried to <laughs> interpret one of my sentences. Nice try, Siri. That was Siri. a Stepford moment. Nice try, Siri. <laughs> Yeah, um, no, um, yeah. so I've lost my thread completely. Oh, we were that. talking about you giving <laughs> oh, yeah, up the horn, right. and I'm just trying to find I'm trying mm -hmm. to, you, you have this, uh, find this relationship between, right. well, first between all, musician and composer, and, yeah. and, and how mutually beneficial and sometimes antithetical it can be. Yeah, well, initially I was a horn player, a teacher at the university, no, a horn player, then a teacher at the university, and wanting to be a composer. I was known as a horn player for many years, I was known as a teacher for many years, I wasn't very well known as a composer for many years, and gradually those things all turned around and the horn finally dropped off, right? and the teaching dropped off and the composing was left. Right. So you know, in the 70s or the 80s, I wrote very little music that people would have known. I mostly wrote for students and mm. people that I knew personally, mm. which is, I think is a good thing. Mm. But there was no profile, really, mm -hmm. until a bit later. Sure. <laughs> 
So when did your profile emerge and what do you see as being a flashpoint where you you thought you'd arrived as a composer, if it's not too uh, <laughs> have uh, I arrived dramatic as a, com- a term? Have I arrived as a composer? Of you have. I suppose... Yeah, you know I what just, I mean, just yeah. that uh, kind of like, I, I can do this, I guess, that moment. Yeah. Where... Well, I thought I could do that long before anybody knew about me. Right. Was this because I know you worked with Douglas Lilburn? Is, is yes, he was yes. Um, my teacher with the electronic music field. Yeah. Right, sure. And, and he was very happy with the stuff that I did early on. It was very New Zealand music kind mm. of based and, and fitted mm-hmm. into his aesthetic, really. I was probably just adjusting my mm. sights to fit with the, the person that I know mm. and so much appreciated. Mm. But uh, later on, yeah. So the electronic music and the classical music did run in parallel. For a while they did, yeah. Sure. Then the electronic music became very, uh, it became known as electroacoustic music and became very sophisticated. And the people who listened to electroacoustic music were electroacousticians. It was was like a subgroup of humanity that was really Mm -hmm. pretty small. And this is before the internet now, of course, the, these kinds of groups are everywhere around the world, and sure. that's, that works well, because there are more and more people if you take in everybody. Um, but it seemed too limited to me, and also, <clears throat> uh, you had to work very, very hard to get something that the other electroacousticians would appreciate. Mm. And if you fell down on that, then you'd be snubbed, you'd, you're a failure. So I just kind of mm. gave that whole thing away, mm. really, mm. and um, concentrated mm-hmm. more and more on writing for instruments. If you write for a violin, you don't have to make up the sound, it's there. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> but there was a, an interest uh, in, in electronic music because it was uh, a new, new territory. Was there, or was there a particular um, uh, influence that, that, that steered you in that direction, or was it just a composition or another compositional tool? No, I think in the early days that was probably where I first got the, my composing going yeah. at university because I went to the electronic music studio at Victoria University. Yeah. And the good thing about working in that medium um, is that you are completely in control of what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you go out and play the tape in a concert, there's no performance, no interpreter. It's so y- you learn and you kind of cut, yeah. you know, cut and splice tape and all those old-fashioned things. And every decision you make is kind of final. It's almost like doing a painting. Sure. And uh, and so um, that was a very good training. Mm. Tool actually, because so I, it was almost the, the the process and the control rather than the aesthetic itself. That the kind of the the feeling that you're pushing sonic boundaries with with you know sounds that hadn't been heard before, which is kind of something that's common to electronic musicians in, in the kind mm. of pioneering age. You know, there was still lots of uncharted territory. Yeah, well, back, it was back in very the day. exciting from that perspective, yeah. and a very hard work as well. Mm. I mean, I can you can do things on modern synthesizers which would have taken years mm. in the old days and maybe it was you know, dare I say it, maybe it was better that you had to struggle like mad with old mm. that old technology because you worked hard and then you press a button and something incredible happens and you mm. so what, mm. <laughs> in a sense so mm. there's something about that old fashioned way of working that was mm. seemed to me to be valuable mm. um, but you know the world changes and that's all there is to it mm. Do you think your interest in electronic music at that time has in Informed your classical compositions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And, and and that was something of a um, a, a, a unique uh, influencer that, that that distinguished your your classical compositions. Yeah, may have done. It kind of bled across from one to the other. I mm. think. Um, yeah, to, to some extent, anyway. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of the, the, the that classical piece that you, you yeah that that. Uh, uh, as I say, 
you felt like you weren't um, experimenting anymore, or you you know you know something that uh, you know was right. either right. Yes, that breakthrough. I'm, I'm yeah. wanting to know what that was and. And, I, I could, yeah, I couldn't really pinpoint it to a particular <laughs> thing. One of the no. things that did happen at the beginning of the 21st century is that I wrote a completely tonal piece called Music for Johnny, mm-hmm. which was for uh, my, my um, nephew who died. And, and my sister, this was the way my family was, had never heard a note of my music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I played her a kind of version of it. And she said, no, that's a dirge. Mm-hmm. So that was the end of that. Mm-hmm. Later on, she did catch up with... Um, Brass Poppies, the opera, and Requiem for the Fallen. So that you know, mm. we were reconciled in that way. Sure. But I wanted to write something that would be very easily understood by somebody like my sister who didn't mm. didn't have a classical mm-hmm. knowledge, and also to go back to completely tonal things and treat them in a different way mm-hmm. um, seemed like another challenge. Mm-hmm. To many people who heard it from the outside, it was like, oh, he's gone off the rails. He's just gone back to old stuff. Mm-hmm. But as far as I'm concerned, that was a you know it was a piece that was conceived of in a particular way and, and uh, yeah. unfolded in a unique way, yeah. um, and was you know reasonably mm-hmm. well reasonably successful. It was mm-hmm. Played lots of times and so forth. the term tonal which is mm. something that oh, yes. I, I, I've uh, so just to explain to our, our listeners a bit more because um, it does mm. come up in a couple of pieces um, right uh, where you teeter between tonality and atonality right um, and that's I use yeah it was used oh, yeah. in by two different reviewers and two different <laughs> pieces and I thought well, one it's, might have cribbed the, uh, <laughs> the no, phrase no, from I the other it's, it's true um, <laughs> First of all, so yeah, explain that well, tonality what? is uh, the same scale patterns that are used in Beethoven or Mozart, mm. um, Str- uh, Stravinsky. Um, yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of classical composers that are uh, atonal. Yeah, actually, Stravinsky is yeah. not, not a good example because he can be atonal. Mm. So basically, if you have a little chords like C and G and F, and like that you have in popular songs, mm. that's tonal. That's completely tonal. Mm. Now, if you start to add some other notes in that don't belong to that scale, then it pushes towards chromatic music. And if you push it so hard that you're no longer are connected to those original chords that you call mm. the the tonal ones, mm. you've left all that behind, and you're now floating in a free world mm. of mm. atonality, sure, which is sure. a negative-sounding thing, mm. but it's um, been adopted mm-hmm. and, and uh, yeah, accepted, I suppose. Yeah. So, but but more recently, in, in the last 
10 or 15 years, I have used tonal things like simple things in a complex context as well. And this is something like, as I mentioned earlier on, like the kind of transformation of an idea. So there could be something happening in an orchestral piece which is completely impenetrable. impenetrable. Mm. There's masses of stuff going on and it's dense. And then in contrast to that, there could be very, very simple material as well. So I have a kind of spectrum in my mind between Mm -hmm. the most dense and packed with notes Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the Mm -hmm. few notes of an ordinary old scale Mm -hmm. and work within those and mix Mm -hmm. between them, something like that. So you're saying that one movement, if you like, is is, is atonal predominantly and one is is tonal? No, one of them, no, no, one's atonal and tonal. Right. It changes within... Right. Within seconds, right, sure, yeah, and that's not that uncommon, but yep. it's, it's certainly something that I've developed, yep. and I, maybe I'm hankering back for those old, yeah, you know, those old so you find comfy that, chords, <clears throat> um, it, it, you know, using those two, two you know, descriptive terms, uh, it, it uh, tonal is kind of you said you created a tonal piece to something that you mm. know your sister would en- enjoy. I uh, hoped, yes. yeah, you hoped. And so, how do you, in, in terms of the compositional process, how much is how how important is the audience that you that are going to listen to what you've done? Yes. And by being uh, uh, atonal, mm. uh, what, what is what is your what what are you trying to achieve with that atonality? <laughs> do you not? Um, is that uh, are, are there certain is there a certain sector of your audience that is going to applaud that more adventurous composing? Yes, I'm, I'm not so interested in that. No. Um, the audience... Uh, well, but how do you deal with people that, say, like your family, who, who didn't give you the time of day in terms of your actual music? Like, yeah, like yeah. that, no, and, so, and, and bringing that out wider, mm. you know, trying to get, uh, you know, bums on seats, yeah. for example. How, how, do, how do you... Well, you, I, know, you can dismiss say, it altogether. No, no, I have to say that one of the reasons for leaving the electronic world was because of the limitations of the audience at that time. Um, and I wanted to reach more people, but um, I, did, I didn't want to make it easy for them either. Um, my, I like my pieces to be um, hard, sometimes hard to get a grip on, like they're complex and they're um, hmm. uh, difficult perhaps difficult to grasp. I would, I'd like people to realise when that kind of happens that that's okay. They can't know what's happening at this moment because possibly I don't even completely know. Mm. But at other times in the piece, there, there'll be some clarity and all mm. of, that's all to do with expression. Sure. Yeah. Good answer. That's, yeah, you're that, that, makes, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> I was... Um, so speaking of... Tonality, you know Mozart. <laughs> we've mentioned you've mentioned uh, many times. Um, he is my favourite uh, composer, after all. He's your favourite composer, and uh, and Shostakovich uh, is is um, uh, your other favourite. No, well, that's a funny. You know, oh. I, I taught I taught at Vic for all those years, and I taught composition, and I never mentioned Shostakovich once. Right. Well, how Be- come I've got that information? Because it changed. It all changed. <laughs> um, basically, I was a Stockhausen, Boulez. You know, ultra-modernist composer who wanted to be like those people, Anton Fabian, a number of people like that. And Shostakovich seemed to represent to me somebody who was just writing in an old language. Right. But 
it, that kind of changed when I suddenly started to realize that the music, despite all that, was incredibly powerful and, and, and yeah, rich, mm. and that I'd been foolish. I feel embarrassed that I never talked about Shostakovich because he's he's a very interesting composer and um, I was, mm. my symphonies have definitely been influenced by him mm. and Mahler, I would say, they're the two largest mm. Because Shostakovich has that blend of tonality and atonality, yep. among other things. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so Shostakovich, Russian, mm. uh, 20th century composer. Mm. Um, in fact, he kind of... Um, you know, I, I sometimes get him mixed up with Stravinsky. <laughs> they, uh, but he kind of uh, was influenced by Stravinsky, wasn't he? Not so. No, I mean, but he, he, well, he, he succeeded was, him though in terms of his. No, um, I wouldn't even say that because okay. Stravinsky lived longer. Can you educate me then? Yeah, right. Well, the first thing to say is that Shostakovich has never left Russia, and Stravinsky did. Yeah. And that's a big difference. Stravinsky mm. became the urbane, sophisticated European. Um, for after the Rite of Str Spring and Petrushka and the Firebird, and he actually went on, I think he went on some kind of tour and the First World War broke out and he got stuck in in Switzerland. He started to write these little pieces like The Soldier's Tale and, and mm. amazing stuff. And the language gradually transformed mm -hmm. into neoclassical, which was mm. like writing back in an old style, but in a, in a strange way. Mm. Um, Fell in love with Coco Chanel as well. Yeah, Don't that's right. That. No, that's right. That didn't know about that. <laughs> um, and But Shostakovich grew up in an environment which was very supportive, but very demanding mm -hmm. as to what he was allowed to do. Mm -hmm. And he got into terrible trouble. And I think if he hadn't been quite famous in the West, he probably would have been wiped out mm -hmm. early on, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. One of his operas called Lady Macbeth of the Mitzinsk Country or County um, mm. was reviewed, um, and Stalin saw mm. the review and, you know, mm. said, you know, you change your ways or you've had it. And he Certainly. wrote another symphony after that, which was mm. much more mm. generous towards the audience. And then he started to put everything in code to like secretly write messages to people that so it weren't all that obvious to a to the um, what do you call them the, uh, the proletariat and and the the, the bosses mm. the Bolsheviks would would think oh this is kind of jolly music it's a bit weird mm. but somebody who actually would listen and understand the music would realize that it was quite um, subversive mm -hmm. that wasn't Siri <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we just had the heater. We've just turned it off and just rattling a little bit. Mm. Sorry about that. No, it's good. Um, and we're already in the thick of um, the topic of Russian history. <laughs> well, um, fringes. So I was, I was, uh, I, of course. Now, um, so Russian and German history is something I know that was mentioned in one of the articles. Is something that you've that you have a keen interest in. Look, I'm not. No, I'm no historian. Mm. Um, I know much more about German history, especially the mm. thing that people seem to mm. get obsessed by, the whole Nazi thing and how that could happen mm. in the nation mm -hmm. that produced Beethoven, mm -hmm. etc. Sure. It remains uh, an enigma. Mm. I have no answers for that. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, mm. But that was very, very interesting. And I did write a piece associated with that, one of my successful uh, pieces around the turn of the century, mm -hmm. 20th century, 21st century. Um, mm -hmm. And and so I, I needed to learn a lot about the history in order right. to write that. The right. Russian thing, well, 
No, I haven't gone deeply. Uh, I tend to be interested in that period. They play some between there, like the Poland and mm. uh, the Ukraine and so forth, which mm. were, you know, during the mm. war, Second World War, was an absolute mm. disaster. So what was the, the main reason for adopting Burnt by the Sun in the Ara Video <laughs> Library then, Ross, uh, the, 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 which is very Russian? It is. And uh, is very much, uh, <laughs> well, and, and, and it's uh, tragic, and yeah. uh, and romantic and romantic. Yes. Yeah. So, what was before I um, uh, <laughs> talk about the movie myself? Just tell me oh, what what okay. what was that? Um, uh, you know, what's the connection there, especially to that movie? Yeah. Well, I think if it comes when it comes down to it, it's actually um, Nadia, the little girl, hmm. and working with Mikhailkov himself as the lead actor that relationship is just I've never seen anything like that and and um, her cheeky little coy little feminine gestures all the way all the way through um, they're, they're absolutely beautiful and I'm completely blown away by them every time I watch it and, and if the whole thing has been a little bit um, well it's a, it's a little bit long um, there's a lot of kind of summer you know in the summer holiday place there's lots of weird people who get probably more space than they should mm. and they're a little jokey things I, I, it's a uh, it's a picture of a world mm. uh, as well and of course the world is is beautiful with 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 the little girl but of course it's all going to fall apart mm. and mm. because it's 1936 and this colonel thinks you know he's got a private line to Mm. To Stalin, he actually mentions the numbers as he's being carted off. Right, right. <laughs> you right. can't do anything to me. I, I'm not be touched. And of course, he's uh, mm. he's heading off to mm. his death. Mm. The um, so so that that film takes place in the late thirties yeah. um, and and um, set during the the Great Purge. Exactly. Of, uh, of, of generals like yeah, Colonel Kotov. So. The, ca- uh, the character played by Mikhail, um, Mikhailkov, yeah. Mikhailkov mm-hmm. um, Nikita Mikhailkov, yes. Yeah. So he also directed the film. Yes. And, uh, and his daughter played his daughter. Right. And so it's about a... Uh, and he was a, um, a, a Bolshevik military man who, who um, had been... I guess uh, part of the Red Army and and yep. worked with Stalin mm. and very successful. But in the, in during the, the Great Purge, there the, was many of those people got the right, knife indeed. because it's, yeah. Stalin was so neurotic and mm. paranoid about people who might take over from him that mm. he kind of wiped out mm. many, so, many of the generals. Sure. So the premise of the film is that this uh, this character has has had a relatively charmed life. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> relative to everybody else. That's and, right. And yeah. and there was a a character that that um, enters uh, mm. that is, I think, an old boyfriend of, of his, his wife, wife. Of his much younger and, wife, yes. and that kind of sets off a kind of um, suspicion and paranoia, which was kind of um, uh, was, was part of the uh, uh, the atmosphere of the day. Yes, in fact, it, it doesn't really turn too dark for quite a long time. I mean, Mitya comes in and he's fun. He plays the piano. He plays um, can, the can-can tune and ends up with a face mask on and plays it all atonally. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. I mean, the musical things that happen are, are pretty extraordinary. Mm. Of course, apart from the fact that the tune is wandering its way through 
through everything burnt by the sun of revolution, mm. essentially. Um, and the, that continuous kind of close connection between the, the dad and the daughter right from the beginning when he's in the having a sauna and she's he's naked and she's lying on his back. She's mm. naked and she's beating him with the... Mm with uh, leaves and, and twigs and it just it just mm. really really caught my attention mm. and I thought oh, why am I choosing this as my favourite movie I, I know and love so many other movies and I looked at it again and I thought oh yeah I see nice <laughs> nice um, there's also I guess something I don't know inherently tragic you know the tragedy is is it, is it an um, inspirational to composers is there something oh, yes. <laughs> yeah there's something visceral that composers connect with uh, when when uh things have uh yeah ended in tragedy and well and has that informed um some of your pieces definitely I, I think um the best thing to say about it is that when people are under pressure and stress and their the situations are dire then human beings can you know they can react in extraordinary ways or horrible ways um there's a kind of heightening of human activity via pressure, mm. um, which is, you know, is inspiring, really. Mm. Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and dramatic. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's uh, also something uplifting about the melancholy of music as well, isn't there? A kind of a, wa- a wailing or a, or a lament and a kind mm. of... Um, uh, there's inherent hope. Would they be in composing music out of, you know, inspired by tragedy? Yes, I think so. I mean, it, it can be all very, very dark, and some of my pieces are start dark and they stay dark. Mm. Uh, but I mean, I've written a lot of pieces that aren't like that, and uh, mm. Mm. there's something about the uh, the possibility of hope, not redemption, mm. though. No. One of my uh, string quartet colleague, colleague friends, Helena Paul, said. Why doesn't your music have any redemption? Mm. And, and I can't mm. own that. Mm. It's not the way I see the world. Mm, sure. So my music has to be expression of the way I see the world. Mm. Yeah. I have to. I have to go with that. Mm. And if that puts people off, well, too bad. No, fair. I mean, I, I completely get that. Um, I just, I guess, one other thing I wanted to say about Burnt by the Sun was just mm. looking, you know, what into your it feelings a bit about more. the movie. Um, I haven't seen it since 1994. Oh, okay. uh, must confess, right. but um, and I, uh, it won the the Oscar for best foreign film at yep. the time, and, yep. and films you know that are celebrated in that way are sometimes uh, you know they get a bit of a backlash. But I remember uh, liking the film and, but not necessarily completely getting it. Mm. I think there mm. is. A, I was talking to somebody else about it today who saw okay. it when they were 17, and they said they, um, I, I was a bit older when I saw it, but. They were um, a little uh, admired it, but mm. were a little bit perplexed by it. And okay. the, I think, um, uh, because I guess there's sometimes as a, um, there's sometimes when you're watching a film from a, a completely different culture and a completely different mm. time uh, yep. period, yep. you are. Um, sometimes there's an expectation that you bring some prior knowledge to that. And so things that are not explained 
are, um, can be mystifying yes. uh, to some people. Yes, that's what um, I like. Yes. I don't want to be told. True, true, true. I don't true, want to be told what's, what it's all about. Sometimes, <laughs> though, I, it's nice to kind of have those things be very subtly uh, suggested. Yeah, sure. And you get it. Because you make those connections, yeah, yeah. so I quite That's like a reward. that. You I like that experience. That. Yeah, yeah. So bringing something to it, rather than being kind of like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't quite understand why this person behaved in that way. Yeah. Is that a cultural thing, or is this a? Do I have to know what their backstory is? You know, based on the fact that they are a Red mm. Army Colonel or mm. whatever. So that was all. I, so I think that I. Um, so the film, I I liked the film, but I didn't at the time mm. take it away and and uh, you know carry it with me, if you like. Yeah. But um, but then I haven't. You know, I should have caught up with it again. Um, but see, I like it. It is very. It is an emotional thing because you know something is going to undercut this. You don't know what it is. You have no idea that Matura is going to be the person who brings the downfall hmm. of the whole thing. He just seems like somebody who was in love with the wife and now hmm. comes back and tries to wheedle his way back into her affection and so forth. Um, hmm. But it's a lot of yeah. There's a lot of things that aren't all that. I mean, hmm. right at the beginning, there's a scene where uh, Mitch comes home to his flat. And his dad's there, and he's talking French, and he says, talk Russian, and then, then a phone call comes, mm. and he doesn't want to answer it. Mm. And then he picks up the phone, and he says, I'll do it. Mm. So he's basically to- been told to go mm. and bring down cold hot. But you don't know sure. what the hell that's all about. Mm. And in the end, actually, he cuts, he's sitting in the bath with his mm. wrists cut. Well, so. I remember that vividly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, so yeah. That, that's the sort of frame Sure. For the demise of mm. a way of life. Mm, mm. I mean, I um, my interest in history is is, is, is much more uh, uh, you know prevalent now than it was mm. in 1994. Right. Uh, when I was uh, you know trying to take in everything that was happening in 1994, you know, yeah, but, yeah. But, but history and and uh, is much more interesting to me now. And so, grows into it a bit, indeed. So even actually researching this stuff is mm. fascinating. And of course, yeah. with the death of Stalin uh, recently, you've seen that film. I, yes, I, take I did. It, you know. yes. So I mean, there, there's there's been other things that have been connected to that history that I've yeah. really enjoyed learning about. Mm. Mm. Um, but I do, um, you know, unlike Hitler's Germany. Uh, which has a very sort of cut and dried kind of narrative. You know, people understand what went on in World War Two, in you know, because it's a simpler narrative. Mm-hmm. But people don't understand World War One nearly so much because of the geopolitical. Yes, that, know, is, that is a very tangled stuff. web, isn't it? Yeah, and <laughs> Russian history is kind of in itself complicated because yes, Stalin was a very. Uh, uh, kind of a little bit Trumpian um, in yes. <laughs> in his um, inconsistency. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is the and oligarch and, and yeah, action and Trump. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. So goes as far as he can down that path. Yeah. So there's similar personality types. Mm. They're just uh, mm-hmm. born into a different. <laughs> yes. No. Well, I, I suppose I like that, that exotic thing because of the mm. uh, the fact that it's different from one, one's everyday experience. One's drawn into another world. Mm. There's mm. one thing to say about Mikhailov, though, which I discovered quite by accident. Um, He's been a supporter of Putin's, big supporter, and he's been responsible for the um, return of the body and the body of work of a um, Russian philosopher, uh, fascist, 
religious character called Ivan Ilyan, mm-hmm. and he's been his body's been taken and buried in a cathedral in a Russian cathedral in Moscow, and and Makarov's been behind that kind of thing, and that is all to do with um, uh, creating a um, society where democracy is like everybody has a vote every couple of years, but they're just there to support the the leader who comes from somewhere else, who's a, a, a different person and who is, is not to be challenged in any way. And, mm. and all that kind of stuff that's going on in Russia and the, mm. um, the fact of, of um, the truth being, you know, just a relative thing that you either feel something about or you don't. Mm. And that's come from the man who made this movie. I couldn't believe it. Yes. Well, maybe he's... Uh... <laughs> Uh, he needs to make another movie, uh, maybe an autobiography, biographical movie about his particular um, <laughs> brand of pragmatism or whatever you call it. I don't know about that. I mean, he did Burnt by the Sun too, apparently, and I don't think that ever oh, even yeah. got out of Russia. No, it, it was it, so it died a death, that's right. It's One so other thing about <laughs> Mikhail Koth that mm. I, uh, is that, and this um, uh, relates to what you're saying about him being a, a kind of a um, one of Putin's uh, men mm. is that he's uh, run the Moscow Film Festival since 2000 <laughs> and if you were anti-Putin you wouldn't have that job for very long would you? No, exactly So right. that was interesting. He's also the head of the Russian Cinematographic Society mm. Mm. Um, He's, he's a big actually, wig yeah, He's a big, big wig. wig and he's also artistic royalty, his parents and his grandparents were That's all right. kind of artists and artists poets and, and, whatnot. And, and his older brother is Andrei Konchalovsky yeah. who is a quite a well-known uh, director in his own right, oh, okay. who, who um, listeners might know the film Runaway Train. He okay. directed the Hollywood film, good film <laughs> with John Voight. Okay, yeah, yeah, and you, you know, I have to. I, all I can say is that in 1994, he wasn't all of these things. No, and he made a movie that yeah expressed a lot of stuff Indeed. about. Well, you've supported his movie even with the knowledge that you. Well, as I, as I say, I was you. only recently discovered this, and I thought <laughs> that is kind of hilarious in a way. Yeah, yeah, but it's uh, not surprising as well. No, no. no. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess uh, another um, going back to the music. Uh, another um, uh, project that you've had is uh, the Kugels, mm. uh, who play the klezmer. Is that how you pronounce it? Klezmer, indeed. Yeah. And you uh, kindly gave me a CD of the Kugels play Klezmer. Fantastic stuff. Really? Really enjoyed it. And that's all my music, and of course. It's 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 gorgeous. My mother really likes it. No, oh, that's the way. That's the and spirit. I must admit, I didn't really know much about Klezmer. No. Um, but I can relate it to what we've been talking about, because mm. even though it is um, uh, Israeli or a, a Jewish music... Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, it's it, European. It, it, it again is informed by oppression yes. and and, uh, well, that, and, right. and solidarity, you know, that comes out of uh, oppression. So there's a, mm-hmm. there's a through line there. There is a thread. So tell me what got you into Klezma. Well, um, about 2005, a friend of mine rang up and said, we're going to form a Klezma band. And I said, what's that? Um, and But you, you've got an accordion. Well, you need an accordionist. Can you come along and play some music? So I went to the rehearsal, and I actually found it quite striking. Even though I don't normally like particularly kind of modal music, of a lot of folk music I find just sort of slightly annoying hmm. in some respects. But this was intriguing. And um, even though I tried to play jazz and, and um, played the saxophone for a few years, I could never feel ownership of that. I was always somebody on the outside peeking in. Yeah. Um, but this went straight to me. 
And so mm. even soon after we played a few, you know, concerts and things, and I got a better recording, I realised I had to write some as well. Mm. So our concerts at this stage are usually 50-50 traditional and, and mine. going around New Zealand again in September, mm. uh, starting in Stewart Island and mm. finishing mm. way north. I'm, I'm in a band, in a van right? at my age. Isn't that ridiculous? Sure. Yeah. So when's your Wellington gig? <laughs> uh, we are playing at the um, Tuatara mm-hmm. Brewery. Yes, the third the, eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, third eye. On the 14th of August, we've got a concert. Nice. Yeah? We'll be there. Good. My mum will be there. Yay. Yes. Good. Um, I want to meet your mum. <laughs> so um, the you were saying that there's a 50-50 traditional uh, music and mm. your music. Mm. When I listen to the music, mm. to me it sounds authentic. It sounds traditional. There's, 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 what, what, how do you sort of account for that? Is there a... Do you... Genius, I think. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but is there a um, a kind of uh, you know a, a, a certain palette you know that, mm. that 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 is the klezmer? There have to be you the know scales and, and, and the yeah, instrumentation. And so, so there was a kind of a narrow band of options, I suppose. Is, it is, is narrow. It is narrowed down. And and, it, and that's kind of folk music anyway. It, isn't it is, it? of course. You it know, is. you don't go too far outside the no, no, no. You know no, the no. parameters. No, that's right. Um, but you, yeah, you. Um, the thing is, I couldn't mm. help try and write it because that's what I do and the more I knew about the music I started to see things that weren't like ordinary old music like the chords Mm. and the melodies get out of plumb sometimes Mm. and it produces strange dissonances Mm. and it doesn't obey any of the rules of like conventional 
harmony or stuff that you might learn, or even counterpoint, which is something I absolutely love. Um, it's all kind of thrown out, and the melodies can be angular and, and expressive, um, and then the harmony can contribute to that. Mm. And, and yet, but the scores themselves are only a single page, like a pop chart. Yes. So I don't supply any of the lines that the bass is going to do or the accordion. I see. It's it's yeah. simplified in that way, and okay. I, I've found that incredibly yeah. uh, refreshing so to do. So there's an element of improvisation. Yeah, but not like jazz, you see. No. Nobody's lying, laying, laying down a great solo on no, that. So there's sure. no ego. No. We're all just adding to a little yeah, texture. I did wonder. Yeah, little how texture you, of things. I wondered how you sort of notated it, because it is very... Mm. Uh, there's a lot of it's, detail. Yeah, and, and that's uh, all and, improvised. And, yes, I see. And yeah. I love, I love yeah, that yeah, about yeah, it yeah. as well. Well, yeah. So it brings us back to the to my question earlier, where I got uh, went back to your childhood instead. But it was about the Sibelius software, oh, and God. for those that um, right. And I, I, it's a why, why are you laughing like that? It's as if you're embarrassed. Uh, no, I've. Um, <laughs> why are you laughing like that, Rob? Because I'm going to have to put myself out there and say something about Sibelius, aren't I? The fact of the matter is that it's a software that whose kernel came. The basics came back from the 70s. And as with a lot of software, it's been an accumulation of ideas. Mm. And so that produces like little branches and things that don't, okay. are not as organic. Right, so you're doing a critique of the software right now. I this am, is, really. You know, yeah. As somebody who's used it for years and, is, years and, years. and, and knows it inside out. Yep. And have Knew just, it inside out. I've forgotten it all already. Okay. Crazy. Right. But the general principle... Um, for those that don't know, mm. is that rather than notating music by hand, mm. that you input the music either by playing a keyboard. Tell, yep. tell me how, well, how, how it works. I use a QWERTY keyboard. A QWERTY keyboard. Where yes. I just, I mean, because I, you know, I, can't, I don't have any piano techniques. So right. I, the accordion is something else. I um, see. <laughs> so tell me. Well, how, I, I how would you just compose. Yeah, uh, I, w- I would think of. Um, I think of it, the start of a tune, and it would be in my mind, and I would think. Okay, how am I going to make that sound look on the page so that somebody who plays it will play what I've got in my head? So the notation is the go-between. It is. Um, and then uh, normally if it's a complicated piece with lots of instruments, I'll write some little thread into the future and then I'll build up the other threads around it. Mm. Uh, and and the, that thread may in the end not be very important at all, but it adds as a little... Um, mm-hmm. String to attach the evolution of the piece. I see, yeah. So it goes in a slightly leapfrog kind of way through Mm. the piece Mm. Um, and very organic. And as I say, trying to transform material and so forth. Okay. Yeah. So doing it on a keyboard with a computer screen, Mm -hmm. using using that process, is if you were doing it with pen and paper, obviously Mm. it's a lot slower, which is why you principally don't use pen and paper. Yeah. But do you think that it radically changes the, the, the composition itself, the me, the medium. Yeah, it can do. I, yeah. I believe so. Um, one, one of the things is you can play back the material on the computer, mm. so your feedback is not your own inadequate piano playing, but right. actually a, a mock-up, which can be horrible or right. possible. What kind of sounds are coming out? Like so, Quasi-instrumental ones. If you're, yeah, I mean, if you're sure. a string quartet, then it's yep. violin, You've got this, and vi- right. viola and cello. Yes. They'll produce something. Yes. Um, that is enormously helpful. But yep. one thing happened when I wrote my third symphony um, and I had soft music software for it, it was a big, big piece. And I realised when I printed out the parts that they were a whole ream of paper. Hmm. Now, if I 
if I'd had pen and paper to do that, yeah. I wouldn't have written such a big piece. Sure. That may not be the good thing. I mean, the right. piece might have been much better for being mm. trimmed down by mm. working by hand. But it is a tool. It's a powerful mm. tool. So would you write uh, in terms of, you know, with your multi-instruments, are you writing a piece in one instrument and then adding another instrument? Or are you, you know, or does it vary, uh, you know, where you can imagine the, the viola, the cello, the violin, mm. all kind of concurrently? Or do you write one instrument and then another instrument? Well, or does it's, it, vary? It's, it varies, but... It, because my music is linear, that classical music is linear, that is, it, it has lines counted to each other, which is called counterpoint. Yeah. Um, one writes some material in one voice yes. and then builds the other material around it, perhaps. As you go. Yeah, and then that might inspire a change that you hadn't thought of particularly, that a reaction to something that's occurred as they've unfolded. Yeah. And by that strange yeah. process, yes. a piece comes into existence. It makes sense. Does it? Well, it the piece may not, but anyway, the idea perhaps. It does, it does. <laughs> Can we talk about Free Radicals, mm. which is a, um, a a remastered CD is coming out later this year. Yes. Uh, you lent me a... a uh, I just heard some Free Radicals. I heard it way back in the day, mm. in the 1980s, because it got played on student radio and, That's and right. things like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, Free Radicals... Uh, Somebody described it, it sounds like Eno meets Industrial Punk meets Stockhausen. <laughs> um, and I can, um, can, can verify that oh, okay. as a pretty accurate description oh, because you, you gave me a, a CD of it because it's not available on, online anywhere. No. So I actually heard it about uh, an hour and a half before this interview. <laughs> right. uh, but I did manage to hear, hear all of it. And um, it was really good to hear. Mm. Um, good. <laughs> and I... Um, there's something about experimental music that is uh, using um, electronics and, and other acoustic instruments that it, it dates rather well, I thought. Did you think so? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's, it, 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 um, so is it early 80s? Is that when yeah, it was yeah, created? Yeah, mostly in the early 80s. So, how, so um, Free well, Radicals was three people. Uh, yeah, Jerry Meister was part of it. Jonathan Besser and I were the main creators. Uh, right. Jonathan, uh, um, Jerry played on tracks, um, yep. but he wasn't part of the, the kind of core of the band. Yep. And was that co-composition? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. definitely. And that's an interesting thing because we didn't always agree. And one of the things, you talk about a synergy between people. Well, if you've worked on something and the other person comes along and says, well, actually, I don't really like that. Your, um, you know, your inspiration is mm. kind of slightly curtailed. So mm. there's a lot of compromises working in, in that way, which was not completely satisfactory. Mm. But, um, you know, because that's I... That's being in a rock band for you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly, a compromise. It's, um, that's an interesting thought. But anyway, um, I got into this because I, you know, I love the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and stuff like that. Mm. And I again, this electronic music seemed very isolating, so I wanted to write something that be involved in a musical world where people would be able to get mm. a wider audience. This was completely disastrous. Mm-hmm. We had a concert, and I remember one concert in, in Whanganui where there were three people in the audience, and because there was no MIDI in those days, we had to connect all the stuff up by hand. It took about three hours to set a concert up. <laughs> um, and so it just, it was like, 
completely ridiculous. And what was what it was driven by, apart from the desire to communicate, was of course the beginning of things like drum machines. Mm. Because I'd never written any anything for kind of rhythmic stuff like mm. that, mm. and that opened the door on that kind of mechanical mm. pop. Not yeah. pop, really. It's not no, pop no, music. No. Yeah. Although there's kind of a it, joke. It, 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 it did. I mean, on the CD that you gave me, there is a um, <coughs> there is a a spectrum of stuff on. Yes, there. it's not. Uh, I, know, I know. Each track is kind of its own thing. Yeah. Um, and um, I and you've got a track on there called Len Lie. Yes. And I couldn't help but think that it's the sonic equivalent of Len Lie. Yes, it actually uses the recordings. Right. Some of his sounds. Right. 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 So yeah. there's that's quite a that's quite cool, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know. It's um. Some of those pieces I trimmed down. That was one that was mm. quite a lot uh, bigger than finally will come out on the disc. Right. But yes, of course, Lynn yep. Myers are very important because of the title of the band. Oh, Free right. Ra- Free Radicals, of course. the movie. Indeed. <laughs> Although having said that, there are a couple of imposters on Spotify called Free, Free Rad- Radicals. Yeah, so, you, so you're, you're going to be the... Th- when you go on Spotify with we'll your release, third. you'll be the third. Yeah. Well, yeah. Funny thing happened back in the... We we officially say the band's still going, which is mm. a joke, really, mm. because we haven't done anything together for about thirty years. Mm. And, but we once one time there was an advertisement for Free Radicals playing in a pub in Wellington, and we went down to find out who the hell these people were, and it was a jazz, funky jazz group, yeah. and there were two people in the audience, me and Jonathan, and yeah. they were playing at the other end of this bar. Right. So after they played, we went up and said, um, I'm sorry, but we are the Free Radicals, and you are, cannot possibly be the Free Radicals. And the drummer yep. looked as though he wanted to beat me up. Yeah. Um, but the other guy said, oh, okay, yeah. Well, yeah. you will find yeah. something else. Well, you, you, yeah, well, it's actually a, a, a contemporary plague now, you know, yes, finding original band names. Is, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. we were there first. Yeah, you, you were. <laughs> um, I, I particularly like the, the track I Do, which closes that CD. Oh, yeah. And uh, it reminded me a lot um, for, um, of, um, do you know the band The Books? No. Right. You know, they, they kind of had reasonable commercial success with kind right. of cut-up music, electronic, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. and, and uh, kind of ironic uh, sound bites and things like that. It is most fitting that Sacrificial to base your internal decisions on each other's reliance on tired old structures. Hey, follow your instincts now. For my local life, for my local life, to have and to hold, to have and to hold, from this day forward, from this day forward. For better, for worse, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in sickness and in health, until death do us part, until death do us
Echoes of, of uh, Laurie Anderson and there and and others of that of that yeah, period as well. All of which came yeah. later, of course. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure, it did. Oh, actually, the is it my life in the bush of ghosts? Yeah, well, yeah, that, that, you know, that you was knows, around. Yes, indeed. That was an influence. Yeah, I, could, I could hear that. You know yeah. that strange one with the is that the CD the record yes, that's it's got my the, life in the bush the, of ghosts. The, yeah, the yeah. prince, the um, the priest. Yes, the California yes, priest. Yes. Oh yes. Lord, I've been such a bad boy. Yeah. Like that, that was definitely uh, yeah. an influence. Yes, we, we <laughs> my, my my friend and I quote that record all the time. That ah, was a very it was it was brilliant, was a, um, quite brilliant. It was um, good. Now, um, uh, I the other thing I wanted to to talk to you before we. I mean, you know just. So much, but um, I just wanted to also mention about your connection to uh, the filmmaker Roseanne Liang. Right. Um, yes, and, indeed. Uh, and that was, um, she made a film called Banana in a Nutshell, a, mm. uh, a mm. documentary, and that was kind of at the time that you moved into the valley, roughly at that time. Oh, that's right, yes. Um, and, um, and I think you even mentioned that, that your daughter-in-law had made this film. and. Mm-hmm. That I should go and see it, and uh, and we ended up doing, you know, quite well with the the DVD of it. In fact, I really love the film. Yeah, um, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing. So, for those that haven't seen it, it's um, I, I call it an autobiometry. I, I, <laughs> That's um, pretty good. I coined that. Mm, it, yes, it, it yes, didn't yeah. catch on. Oh, no, but well, I um, like it. Yeah. Anyway, I'll describe it from our website. It's uh, the, the synopsis is having fallen in love with a white New Zealand boy, twenty-seven-year-old Liang turns the camera on herself in this thoroughly intimate self-account of the struggle to gain acceptance from her traditional Chinese parents. Heartfelt, brave and unabashedly romantic, Liang shows great sensitivity in balancing her ambitions as a filmmaker with her vulnerability as a subject. And um, Liang went on to to make it into a comedy drama as well Mm -hmm. called um, My Wedding and Other Secrets. That's right. So um, how do you know Roseanne? <laughs> She's my daughter-in-law. So is that close enough a connection? It is. So, <laughs> so the boy was my son. Sure. And uh, so, can from father-in-law's law's point of view, you know, can you give us any insights into well into the making of that film? Or no, not at all. That all happened in Auckland. Sure. Um, we, we knew that he was dating a Chinese girl, and that was like great. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. My, my my daughters-in-law are Russian. Korean and Chinese, right? Yeah. So no problem there. But the yeah. the fact that her parents were so against um, Stephen and that he had to learn, I think he had to he had to um, propose in Mandarin or something, and he learned very very laboriously. Propose in Mandarin. Yeah, he had to well, propose. Well, that's oh, not all propose. Right. No, no. He had to get the permission off the dad from oh, Mandarin. He had to talk to the dad. All right. Well, that's just a wee hoop to jump through. Just a wee hoop, exactly. And and he did it. And um, 
Yeah. And they have two kids, and nice. she's on making yeah. more and more movies, and yeah. he's part of a hmm. game design company, yep. which is doing all right. Very good, yes. But that must have been quite... Um, quite special though to 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 have that uh, uh, I don't know or was it how did Stephen take it being the subject of uh, the un you know he's uh, a very uh, shy boy I, yes. I don't think he enjoyed it that much <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> anyway the result was was, was the good. result was yeah. good and and of course the 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 comedy drama that was made several years after was kind of um, a uh, didn't wasn't quite the same because in, in the way that you you mm. know when you fictionalize yeah. dramatize these things it, it, they, it's a rom-com and a rom-com deliberately yes, so indeed that's right and then yeah. it becomes genre first and, exactly you know which i'm not uh, completely thrilled yeah, by because yeah, yeah, I, I love the rawness of the original indeed, that's it was right. a matter of need yes it wasn't a matter of indeed, making a was. commercial that's right thing. anyway um good so mm. that's great i um um, we haven't mentioned Inner Worlds, which was your... That was your, a compilation your, of early electronic oh, okay, pieces, right, sure. yes. So Indeed, they, which actually goes right back to um, the 70s and 80s. Yeah. So, the future. Ross, you've got more um, Symphony Number no. 7 in you? Symphony Number no. 7 has uh, been written... Has it? ...and being played in Auckland next year with the Auckland okay. Philharmonia. All right. They've premiered all of my symphonies, okay. which is amazing. Yeah, that is cool. They've been very generous... Actually, that, that's one reason to want to write a symphony. Is it is you've got somebody Absolutely. to play it. Yeah. yeah. Um, does it take a lot of work? Oh Maybe. yes. yes, I, yes. I mean, months you know, and months. Months and months. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a funny thing. It's it's just you. So it's not like trying to make a film and needing you know ten million dollars to get the whole thing set up. It's mm-hmm. just. I mean, it's a lot of money in the orchestra. And, you know, they're being all, all being paid, so it's not a cheap thing. Mm be involved in but its actual creation is completely personal like mm. a painting or mm. do you f- do you find the labor intensity of it to be frustrating at no. times or you love it i just love it there's nothing yeah. i'd rather do than write okay. music yeah. possibly play tennis now that i can't yep. and i'll probably get frustrated and injure right. myself as usual yeah. yes with that yeah but anyway you just have to take more trips to the video store yeah i think yeah, that, instead I think of tennis Mm, complimentary maybe (laughs) (laughs) all right well um it's been awesome talking to you Mm. and um i've i've learned a lot and uh, still many more questions um (laughs) but uh about a very complex business and uh, thank you you for having me on the program um, so i really look forward to going and seeing you play uh, with the kugels okay good and hope to get to one of your uh classical works that would be more difficult because they're not performed here that often. No, but you never know. No, it might be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's been awesome. Um, Good, thanks. You know, uh, looking into your um, the work that you've done and um, you know, really interesting stuff. Thanks again, Ross. No, my pleasure. Thank you. you enjoyed that and thanks to my Aru colleague Svenderstrom who recorded that episode. So as you heard Ross adopted the Russian drama Burnt by the Sun from 1994 
And the conversation also suggested quite a few other titles that I didn't get to mention. One was the Shostakovich biopic Testimony, starring Ben Kingsley from 1998, 1988 rather, made by the prolific music archivist and documentary maker Tony Palmer. I've never seen it, but feel the time is right to now. Also, I recommended the documentary I Dream of Wires to Ross. Didn't get a chance to ask him what he thought, but it's an excellent film about the rise and fall and rise again of the modulus synthesizer, and in this way not dissimilar to the pinball documentary that we featured on the last podcast episode. Other further viewing I'd like to mention is the sublime documentary Coda about Ryuichi Sakamoto, the Japanese composer also known for his dabbling in both electronic and orchestral worlds. And there's Note by Note, the riveting film that documents the painstaking process of building a Steinway grand piano. And if you're a rock fan looking for a primer to classical music appreciation, I'd recommend James Rhodes, The Piano Man. And lastly, we mentioned Len Lai a few times, a hugely important New Zealand-born artist. I noticed that we only have the Len Lai documentary of Flippin' Two Twisters on DVD in our library. And while we do have Free Radicals and other Len Lai short films on VHS tape, it would be nice to change that. Um, there is, in fact, apparently a 19-film compilation on DVD of Len Lai's works called Colorbox, uh, which we'd dearly love to add to our library. That's a strong hint for any Len Lai fan who might be considering adopting a movie, but hasn't done so yet. Um, so if you'd like to adopt a movie for yourself or someone you know, please get in touch directly or through our website. It costs $35 and you can even adopt a movie through our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash rovideo on a month-by-month basis. Finally, it's always great to hear feedback, so whichever way you communicate, please get in touch about what you've heard. Until next time, kakite anō. anō.